everybody. <laughs> uh, it's so good to see you all. Good morning to everybody upstairs in the Well Cafe. I am just so delighted that we're all together in worship today and in both spaces. I know we have just had uh, tremendous times of singing uh, praise to God, uh, hearing about uh, ministry that's happening in Mexico that I know both Larissa and, and Jackson participated in. Uh, just so thankful to hear all that. If we haven't met before, my name is Johnny, and I serve as the lead pastor for this worship community that we call The Well, that meets in two spaces at one time, but we are one community. Uh, I'm so glad you're here, especially if this is your very first time. Uh, I would love the opportunity to meet you uh, and get to know you a little bit uh, and, and find out if you have any questions. I can maybe answer some of those, or at least point you to the right place to get those answers. We're going to be uh, in Scripture today in uh, John chapter 1. So if you brought your Bible with you, you can turn there. It's the Gospel of John chapter 1. Uh, if you do not have a Bible with you, we have blue ones in each spaces, uh, and you can find John chapter 1 on page 1646. To reset for you real quick, if this is your first time here, maybe first time in a long time, we're in week three of a series called the B-I-B-L-E. Is this the book for me. And among the many reasons to do a series like this, one of which is that we do a series because we recognize that the Bible uh, is not a simple book. It's actually quite a complex and difficult book to be in. Uh, it's hard to read. It's hard to understand. Um, it, but we know it's a vital part of our faith, and so we know that we need to engage it. And so we want to do a series like this to kind of help give some tools and some framework uh, with which to engage Scripture and find the life that we believe is there. Uh, last week landed on this idea that the Bible is the story of God told by the people of God. It's a very simple phrase that acknowledges two things, two very important things. First off, in the statement, we acknowledge the very real humanness of Scripture. There are life stories and encounters with God that are told through human experience with human words. And that might be a new idea for some people. It might be kind of a scary idea for some people. But this is how God works. This is how we landed it. God works through the real experiences of real people. And, and that's how we get our scripture. It's very, very real. But we also acknowledge that it's not just human, that there, through these dozens of authors written over the many hundreds of years, spanning thousands of years, that there is something taking place within these stories that are recorded, within the human experiences and the human words. There's something of, 
of a story, a bigger story, like a singular story that's happening, a story of creation and a story of reconciliation. Last week, we called this the thread, like a divine thread being pulled through the biblical record, right? And therein, we see God. And not only is it in the biblical record, but it continues on today. God's present through even the most fallible parts of our human experience that are recorded here. God is there, and there's a bigger story being told. So if you've missed any of this series, there's a lot packed into where we landed over these past two weeks. So if you want to go back and check those out, I'd love for you to do that. FirstMethodistMansfield.org slash media. Uh, All of our sermons and series are archived there, and you can find them. Last week, we ended with this question. How do we find that thread? If it exists, if if there's something of a story happening throughout Scripture, this overarching story, how do we recognize it? How do we decipher what is godly and what is divine, what is good, what comes out of that nature of, of creation and reconciliation, what comes out of God, and what, when I read, is more coming out of the sinfulness of humans? How, how do I decipher those things? Let me put this in a, in a much plainer question that popped up in some of the questions that we had uh, about the Bible that some of you submitted, especially via Facebook. How do I reconcile what seems to be the differing images of God that we see in Scripture? That's how we frame that question. When we read through, and if you have spent any time uh, through Scripture, you might find when you read uh, Joshua, right, or Judges, and then you read, like, the Gospel of John, which we're about to read, or Matthew, and you might seem like, these seem like two different gods, right? Like, how is this one also that one, right? Like, and, and we wrestle with that, and there's lots of ways to explain that, but that's what we want to get into today. How do we recognize that thread? How do we recognize God at work even when it seems like, wow, that doesn't seem like the same God at work as God later in the Bible? So that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, I hope we're going to have a little fun with it. We're going to get in pretty deep. We're going to get a little nerdy, which is what I like to do. So if that's not your thing, like I'll wake you up when it's time uh, to, to tune back in. Hopefully it'll all turn into something really helpful in the end. So by now you've probably found our scripture, John chapter 1. I want to do something a little different today. Um, it's, uh, it's customary in some uh, traditions of the church that as you read scripture, especially from the gospels, that we stand as we read it. So I'm going to ask everybody in both spaces to go ahead and stand uh, as we read from the gospel of John. And by we, you can read along. I'll read it. Feel free to read out loud if you want. That's fine. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. 
the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Thanks be to God for this word. May your blessing be upon it, God, as we read it, as we hear it, as we understand it, and we try to live it. Amen. You may be seated. We're looking today at one of the most beautiful and maybe one of the most challenging passages in the New Testament. It's beautiful, as you, as you heard there, just the, the way John weaves together these words to describe something deep and theological, but also difficult because of how complex he makes it, how often he switches metaphors uh, back and forth. And also, as we begin to try to grasp sort of this paradoxical nature of being with God, but also being God and how all of this works in our mind. When we read the beginning of John's gospel, uh, we have this theological declaration that is, that is a little different from the birth narratives that we're used to uh, in Scripture. You know, if this was the only gospel we had, our uh, Christmas pageants would be a lot more odd and boring. Like, <laughs> but if we didn't have it, I think we would miss out on something that is so deeply meaningful for us. It would be an incredible loss uh, for us in, in Scripture. So, these opening 18 verses, they call them the prologue, John's prologue, are centered around this term, the word, right? That's, that's where it is in the very beginning. We see, this, we see this image of the word, and it's capitalized there for us to see. What John does here in these first 18 verses is not necessarily... Um, uh, it doesn't necessarily need that much explanation, right? You can, you can see that it's remarkable on its own, and you can kind of get the gist of what John's trying to convey here. But what I want to do is I want to search a little deeper, because I feel if we dig just a little bit around this term, the word, then we might find something in there that really makes this understanding come alive for us and has great massive implications for the way that we understand our scripture. Because when we first look at this, we haven't, we've heard enough sermons on John 1, uh, and we have enough embedded theology that when we start reading this, we automatically assume he's talking about Jesus, right? I mean, we already knew that. But was it always that way? So let's look at this word, word, real quick. First of all, this is the nerdy part, so this is not you. I mean, you can take a little nap for a minute. First of all, the Greek word used here is logos, right? Uh, we have a picture of that. You can probably see it. I don't know. If, there it is. Logos. And uh, this is the Greek word used here. Uh, and it's translated into the word word, which is a great translation because it, that's how it works. But it doesn't mean word in the grammatical sense, right? It's not sound and syllable. So it can be a little bit misleading for us. The, the grammatical sense of the word word is, is lexis, also Greek, right? But both logos and lexis come from the same 
uh, root word, the derived from the same root word, which is lego, right? Which is English for finding things with your feet, right? <laughs> I don't know how that like turns into things that translate into word. Maybe it's because of the stuff you say when you find the thing. I don't know. <laughs> lego means to speak. Uh, <laughs> But out of that, we derive these two words, Lexus and Logos. And, and Logos is, has this richer meaning, right? It's not, it's not simply the, the word itself, but it's more like the opinion or the account or the discourse or the reason. Like the, it's kind of the substance of the word, right? So it's actually a pretty versatile, versatile term. They use it all over. But 500 years before Jesus, there came along a, a man named Heraclitus, right? If you're looking for a, a child's name, there you go. Uh, Heraclitus... Who, who took this term, logos, and made it um, kind of this foundational philosophical term, right? It became this very useful term for him. Uh, and he used that term to mean uh, a principal order and knowledge. Had a little richer meaning there, or what we would call logic, as you can see there. It's a principal order and knowledge. And, and, be, and from that, we see these rise of Greek philosophers like like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and, and, and many, 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 many more. But they, they kind of jump on this bandwagon, right, with Heraclitus, and they, and they start this understanding of logic becoming kind of this, you know, pervading principle that works in the world, right? And so, so people like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, they all start building upon this idea of logic, uh, this principal order of things, and it helps them make great progress in the fields of mathematics and science and rhetoric because of their ability to uh, have deductive reasoning based on a, on a principal order, right? A logic. You keep moving from there, you have the Stoic philosophers who latch onto this idea as well and kind of understand it and it resonates with them, but there's something more to it for them. They latch onto it and they understand it as the divine, the divine animating principle pervading the universe. <laughs> more simply put, that they feel like there is something that is not random that is holding the universe together. They can feel it. They can sense it in the, in the patterns that they see in nature. They can feel it in the way people interact with each other. There is this sort of pervading force in the universe that they feel. It might be God. It might not be. We don't know. But there's something more. From there, we find a Jewish philosopher, right, named Philo. He's not the only one, but there's a lot, there's a lot of these people, but I'm just kind of narrow view of history here. Philo, born uh, 25 BC, um, but lived all the way up to uh, uh, the year 50. Um, so he was born well before Jesus, well before John, but their stories kind of overlap a little bit. He adopts this term into Jewish philosophy and theology. And he understands this pervading force in the universe, right? This logic uh, to describe the nature and work of God, our creator. It's a concept that's not new to Philo, right? In Jewish theology, they understood God to be the creator and God to be pervading throughout creation, to be very present in the world. But he adopts this Greek philosophical understanding of logic, logos, and he brings it into uh, Jewish theology as a way to communicate with a new audience. It's a way of describing what he already knew, that there was something that was bridging the gap between the material world and God. 
something that kept them connected. He says it this way, the logic of the living God is the bond of everything, holding all things together and binding all the parts and prevents them from being dissolved and separated. Philo called it the firstborn of God. Is this starting to sound real familiar? And so this idea of the logos, the logic of God, that he begins right here with, this this crux of John's opening, is not a new concept. It's not something John made up. This isn't new to John. This is actually John co-opting something that has already existed long before him, that many people have latched on to this idea. And yet he grabs a hold of it and brings it in to his gospel. Okay. If you've fallen asleep, it's okay to wake up now. We're done with all that. The first 13 versions, uh, verses of this passage, John employs this term logos, like, much like Philo would, uh, to explain the story of God as we described it last week. But only John and, and Philo, I guess, would call this the logic, not the story. So let's look back over verse 1 real quick. Notice how it begins. In the beginning. This isn't a coincidence, right? John, what John wants to do is immediately take the reader and the hearer right back to the first creation story. He wants somebody to go, okay, this sounds familiar to me. Like I've heard a story that begins much like this. In the beginning, John takes you there intentionally to, to understand the first creation, but then to understand that this word that would not be new to the people who read this, this pervading logic, right? The logic of God existing in the beginning, he wants, to, he wants you to connect that to the creation narrative of something that has existed before and existed at creation, was a part of creation. It was not something that was created, but it was already and always present already. Verse 3, through him, God's logic, the logos, um, which is a, uh, a masculine term in Greek, which is why you see the he and the him pronoun a lot, Uh, through God's logic, all things were made. Without that logic, nothing was made that has been made. And in God's logic was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. It was present and active and continues to be so. Verses 6 through 8, we start to catch a little bit of a glimpse of what John's going to do. Starts talking about this guy named John. Uh, Not him, John, but John the Baptist, right? We know him. Uh, He's kind of referring to this guy, but he hasn't fully revealed his purposes yet. Verses 9 through 13, he talks about, uh, uh, through switching metaphors of of word and light and life and he, like he switches all through those things. It's hard to keep up with him a little bit. Uh, In these verses, he describes how God's logic continues to pervade in the world, to give light to everyone, but it's not universally accepted. In fact, it's often rejected. And this is a great tragedy for John because the world owes its very existence to this logic. And yet, it is pushed aside. But not everyone, John says. Some see it, some accept it. Not all reject it. Now to this point, it sounds a lot like what we talked about last week. This concept of narrative. The story of God. Yet John is using this term, logic. A term that's familiar to both Jews, Greeks, and John and much of the world that John writes to. But up to this point, there's nothing necessarily new here. If we just read the first 13 verses, I mean, this sounds like anything else. This could sound exactly like something Philo would have written, exactly like something Plato would have written. I mean, it's, it's nothing new. For John, there's nothing particular about his faith that distinguishes it from anything else. It's very universal 
in that sense. No one would argue with him. But then John introduces this little twist for us in verse 14 when he says, The word, the logos, the logic of God, the animating principle of the universe, God's will and dream for all creation became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now we have a new idea. John says, we have seen it. We've seen the glory of God's work. We've seen the glory of his story. We've seen the glory of his logic because it became a real person. We saw it. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God until now. Jesus has made him known. The very logic of God is put on flesh and bone and blood. I've heard a pastor say that God slipped into skin and walked the earth. And his name is Jesus. So what the Greek philosophers used to describe the pattern of meeting in the world that they saw, what Philo used to to describe God's great creative power and plan to work in the world, John has co-opted to use in a new context with fresh meanings. And hopefully to undergird our understanding of who this Jesus is. The logic of God is revealed in Jesus. That thread that we've been looking for, Jesus is made of that. And that's who we see. This is the particularity of our faith. The particularity of our faith is that there is something out there bigger than us that is, that is ordering this world, that has designs for the world, and that thing came to be in our presence in the person of Jesus. God is not distant. God is very real and very much here. And what we've been given through Jesus is this new access to this cosmic reality that, was so, that felt so distant, right? But God hasn't changed. doesn't mean that God was absent before, that God wasn't here before, and only now that Jesus is here is God working in the world. In fact, that's not true at all. God has not changed. His plans haven't changed. The power hasn't changed. The will and dreams for creation haven't changed. But something has changed, and that's our ability to see God. Our vision has changed. When we ask that question, how do we find the thread? This is how we find the thread. When we want to see God's logic at work in Scripture, when we want to reconcile these seemingly different images of God that we see, this is how we do it. You read Scripture with A hermeneutic. A what? (laughs) You can get them in Sky Mall. (laughs) A hermeneutic is a fancy 25-cent word that theologians like to use, but here's what it means. The science or criteria of interpreting Scripture. It's the way you understand what you read. It's a sort of guiding blueprint or, or framework with which You read scripture that helps you understand what you're reading, that guides you through the process. If you don't have one, what you'll find is that as you read through scripture, you'll find yourself tossed back and forth as to what what does all this thing, what does all this mean? But your hermeneutic becomes your rudder that helps you steer and navigate through those choppy waters. It's the way you see scripture. And John gives us that hermeneutic right here, uh, verse 18, when he says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. 
The very being of Jesus, the very presence of Jesus, the life, the teaching, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, even the way Jesus reads scripture, which we get to see a lot of through the gospels, all of that reveals to us the fullest picture of the glory and the majesty of God, the goodness of God, the designs that God has for creation. Jesus reveals all of that to us. Jesus is made of the thread that we are searching for. And so when we struggle to recognize God within the pages of Scripture, when we struggle to figure out, like, is this God? Who is this? This doesn't sound like God. When we wrestle with an image that seems a bit distorted and we're not sure how to read and we're not sure how to interpret, we're not sure what this is supposed to mean for us, we use Jesus as our criteria for understanding the way God has worked throughout the biblical record and the way that God is working now, Jesus is what helps us recognize that big story that's being told throughout Scripture and today. You might think of it as a lens, right? Some of you wear glasses in here, contacts, right? Some of you wear glasses to an extent that if you were to take them off, like you're just, I don't know where I am, you know? But when you put them on, it brings things into focus, right? Jesus is like a special like, type of glasses, that you put on. If you don't have those, you don't need glasses. I have a picture of some that I can show you where to find them. Um, <laughs> they make them, apparently. <laughs> Jesus is like these special lenses that you put on that you begin to see things you couldn't see before. You start to recognize things. Pictures of God throughout Scripture become a little more into focus. The image sharpens a bit. The colors are more vivid. You see now things that were there all along, but you just couldn't see before. A more theological way to put this is that Jesus is the word within the words. Jesus is the word, the logos, the the logic of God contained within the words of Scripture. So, We see Jesus, and when we know Jesus, then we know what to look for. And we begin to recognize it. And we begin to recognize Jesus, not only within the Gospels, but as we we turn through the pages of Scripture, as we begin to understand how God has worked in the good times and in the messy times, through, through our faithfulness and through our sinfulness, God, the way that God has worked, when we begin to recognize God's logic through Scripture, we begin to also recognize it out here in the world, too. It's like we don't ever take those lenses off. We begin to see the world differently, which means we interact with the world differently. It helps us tell the story of our lives better. It helps us live better. It helps us live more in tune with that thread, with that logic, more in tune with God. Now, there are great implications for a hermeneutic like this, for a Jesus lens like this. One of those is that it might change your relationship with Scripture. If Scripture was sort of like a crystal ball, right, where you just kind of open it up and read it, and then it's supposed to mean something directly to your life, then... It might have to change that. You might find yourself reading parts of Scripture and seeing things, and and, it might call some things into question for you. And that's that's not to disengage or to dismiss Scripture, 
but it just means when you read it, when you interact with it through the lens of Jesus, you might have to ask different questions about what you are reading than the questions you asked before. It's going to change your relationship with the scripture, and hopefully in a very good way. Hopefully what it does is take something that we've often used as this concrete, stale, dead text and makes it come alive again. Because we find the Spirit of God moving through the pages and through the words. We feel it moving through our own spirit. And then we begin to see it out in the world. This becomes a living word again. It also changes your relationship with Jesus a little bit. Jesus, our our personal Lord and Savior, right, can no longer only be that. When we understand the world through the lens of Jesus, we understand that Jesus did not see himself as simply a password to get into heaven. That instead, he understood his life as embodying that very logic of God in the world, which meant announcing that in the way he spoke and in the way he interacted with others, the way he healed, the way he served. It became a very real thing. He's not a password. He's more like a decoder ring, right? When that logic becomes implanted in our heart, we stop living by our own and we start living by Christ's. This understanding of Jesus as the word, as the logic of God, changes the way we interact with Jesus and hopefully in a good way. Hopefully instead of just some intellectual assent to a belief in somebody named Jesus, instead... He comes alive in us, lives in us, and lives through us. As we continue over the course of this year, those of you that have, that have been here, um, you know that Pastor David has challenged us uh, in a scripture, Philippians 3, uh, verse 10, to know Christ more with each passing day. To know Christ better tomorrow than I do today. To continue to pursue my understanding of Christ my knowing of Christ, and my living like Christ. What better way to pursue that goal, to find a a, a richer and develop a fuller faith than by exploring both the word within the words and the word made flesh. I can think of no better way. So my hope and prayer for each and one of you is that Over the course of this series, hopefully over the past two weeks, hopefully this week, um, and then over the next two weeks, um, that you're gaining an increased sense of confidence in the scriptures. That That you can approach them again as a living word with confidence. That you have somewhat of a framework with how you look at it and how you read it. And that that confidence, because you have a growing confidence, that you find this increased desire to engage scripture again, to invest your time and your attention in exploring God's creative and redemptive work, God's logic that is woven within its pages. That's my hope and my prayer. We have two weeks weeks left. I don't want you to miss any of them. Uh, Next week, uh, we're going to be talking about some very practical, very hands-on, real ways to actually read this thing, right? We've done all the theoretical work. Now we're going to open it up and figure out how you read this thing on your own. All right? Until then, let me pray for us. Gracious God, I thank you for everybody here. I thank you for your word manifested in Jesus, God, your logic. 
the, the way in which you see and work through creation. I thank you for that, God, that it's been at work since the very beginning and is still at work today. God, may it be at work in me. And as I search your scriptures, God, may I find you within the pages. May I hold on to your son, Jesus, God, and search the scriptures for the ways in which you work that reflect not only the time, but reflects our time as well. It's in your name we pray. Amen.